You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Amaravasi Amarav. Okay. Ravasi, uh, in the name of Rav. Um, one of Rav's greatest students, uh, uh, and uh, sometimes Rav's, uh, maybe, and sometimes even someone who sometimes disagrees with Rav. But here he quotes Rav saying, Dogim Kitanim Meluchim. Okay. So we're talking about small fish. And there's a question among the Rishonim here, uh, the commentaries, how they got salted. Uh, Tosfus explains that, we're going to see it on Ahmed Bez, that they got salted by a Jew. A Jew salted them. Or who knows who salted them? They were salted. Or you could say, as I explained last week, that they are salty by nature. They come from the uh, salt water uh, environment, and these fish come out already salted. Uh, maybe that's a little bit strange. I don't know if that's really true. I'm not sure if fish, although they swim in salt water, I'm not sure if they're salty in the point that you can actually taste the salt when you bite into them. But here is the idea that they they either are inherently salty or they've been salted. Now, what happens? What happens is, I'm going to put you guys over here. What happens is, is some non-Jew decides to boil them, to process them, to fry them, to cook them, and maybe put some more spices in there to make them even taste better in his mind. Ein behem mishum Bishule Nacharim. Okay? Now, that means we need, to, we need to know what that is. We've talked about it last week a little bit. Let's, let's think about it again. Um, there is, uh, now, uh, there is a Isur to eat food, and we talked about this last week, that has been prepared by non-Jews for you. And this is a very ancient Takanan Gzeira, that is still relevant today. And I mentioned last week that uh, a lot of the Hashkocha work that I was involved in and many other Mashkech were involved in are in order to eliminate this problem by having a, a Jew on site, a religious Jew, hopefully, who, uh, who will do the cooking, even in these big factories, to make sure that there's not a problem eating them. I have to tell you that there was... Uh, uh, historically, especially in the mid-20th century, a, a rabbinic halacha psak that said foods that come that are processed from factories don't need to be cooked by a Jew. And the reason is because why can't you have food that's cooked by a non-Jew? It's kosher food. Why can't a non-Jew cook for you? So Rashi gives us the background. Let's let Rashi teach us, and then let's talk about it a little bit. So we go to the, the on the right side of the page, and let's take a look at Rashi again. What is Bishuvei Nochrim? So Rashi gives us the background. And as I said, it's quite an ancient gzera. It's quite early in our history that they made a gzera 
for uh, when non-Jews will cook items for you. Why do they make that? So Rashi says, Mishum, that means for the sake of, because of, Chatnut. Because one thing leads to another, and eventually, like the word Chatan, a, bra, a groom, Chatnut means marriage, because marriage happens because of that. Marriage can, uh, uh, a, a, a meal, friendliness, barbecue, invite, party, romance, marriage. Okay? Um, it occurs. And food is the great connector. And therefore, we, they said, we, the way to stop this uh, intermarriage from occurring is to not eat their food. Okay. We can argue about that, whether it was, a, uh, but think about it. There's there's a lot to that. Um, you know, it, it's over food that we become close to each other. We lose our inhibitions. Uh, we sense commonality. Everybody has to eat. In a certain sense, we find, hey, they're just like us. Hey, I like this type of uh, cannoli. Hey, what's that? Oh, a knish? Ah. All of a sudden, and, and this is what the Syrian community uh, in Brooklyn in the beginning of the 20th century uh, saw happening there when the Italian and Jewish populations were, were starting to intermarry. Um, I and uh, Martin Scorsese's film Goodfellas, where you can see an example of it. Uh, uh, they weren't, well, she, I don't think she was a Sephardi, but, uh, and she wasn't even Jewish either. It was Lorraine Bracco, who was Italian, playing a Jew. But anyway, the point is, is that it happens. And therefore, and it still happens. So therefore, this is a very important area. We don't, we don't, we don't treat it lightly. We don't say, we don't throw it out. However, there are a lot of exceptions. Let's see the Rashi. I mentioned this last week. Something that you can eat raw without cooking, even though cooking might make it taste better, low gozru. And the reason, the Chazal did not make the gzera. The reason is because, okay, he made it taste better, but I could have had it without him. Where is it that you really own up to what was produced? Say, wow, that was a raw potato, and you you turned it into that the best um, uh, stuffed mashed potato I've ever had. Wow, she really makes great mashed potatoes. I love what she does with them. But if it's something that you can eat, right, a carrot, okay, that simus is okay. Give me a raw carrot. That's good enough, right? I just, right? Yeah, you can chew on a carrot. So there, there isn't exera. It doesn't. It doesn't mean as much. When you take something and you and you create from nothing something, then you feel indebtedness and you say, wow, look what that person did. So that was the rabbi's understanding. So now we have to figure out what foods can be eaten the way they are. Now, and Rashi explains it further. Let's read it again. Meaning even if the guy cooked it, the non-Jew cooked it and made it taste better, that's not included in Bishul Nochri. And Rashi now explains why. The Kivan, the Kivan, Kivan means since, it's a key Gemara word, we've talked about it many times, and underline it if you print it out, or if you want to uh, mark it with a pencil or pen in your own Gemara, that's good too. 
Tikivan Shenechal, since it's eaten Kamoshu Chai, you might not like it that way, but it is eaten generally, and it can be eaten generally Chai. Chai means alive, but it also means without any uh, things added to it. It's fresh. It's, it's, it's the way it is. It's alive, so to speak. It doesn't need anything. It doesn't need any processing. Ain't no bishel. That's not technically called bishel in terms of being cooked by a non-Jew. Why? It is cooked and it did change. So Rashi says the reason is Dilo Ahani Mide. That nothing was helped. Meaning Ahani is like the word Hano, like a benefit. Lo Ahani Mide. Nothing has really benefited significantly. Mide means anything. Ahani means a benefit. Lo Ahani Mide means that the non-Jew didn't significantly change this thing. At least not enough for us to say it's verboten to eat. Remember, it's kosher in the sense that the elements of it are kosher. It would be non-kosher because it would violate this law. This doesn't violate the law. Ve'elu, these fish, these fish, elu, these fish, nechalin, can be eaten al yidei mochon chayim through salting them. And salting doesn't really cook them in this way. So they are basically raw, basically fresh. And since the non-Jew got them after they were already salted, that's good enough. That's true. They needed. They, they might have needed something. I mentioned before, were they naturally salty? Rashi seems to say that, again, I'm not sure if Rashi means they are naturally salted. They naturally have salt or someone salted them. But even if someone salted them, listen to what I'm going to say, the subtlety. And therefore, had the person not salted them, the non-Jew would have put it in a, in a pot and cooked it. You couldn't eat it. But since the, the material the non-Jew found was a salted fish, which could have been eaten the way it was, what he did didn't really make a difference. And therefore, you can eat it. All right. So now that's a little bit of a background in the laws of Bishul Nochri. I mentioned the other day that there's an ex- this is a very extensive network of laws because it's a cousin to Chol of Yisrael, Yayin Stam Yenam, the idea of wines that we take only if they're processed in a Jewish uh, factory or by, by Jewish vintners. This is an extension of, of, a, of a, a whole series of laws that were instituted. If, we, if you actually go into the history of the institution of these laws, some of them were actually pushed away. They tried to also make exera against oils, oils that were, pro, that were produced by non-Jews, which are so instrumental in cooking, was also banned at one time. And that was a ban that was lifted because it was considered almost impossible to keep. Another extended aspect of this is what we call pas akum, or uh, pas nochri, bread that is baked by uh, non-Jews. And that is something which is sort of in the middle. 
I guess the best way to put it is like this. Bishul Nochri, and again, you guys can chime in if you think I'm, I'm wrong on this. Bishul Nochri is something which is pretty accepted everywhere. And kashrus organizations like though you and others will not allow their hechshar to be go on items. They will not rely on what they used to rely on this idea. Well, if it's not done, if it's done from a uh, institutional way, you don't have to worry about bishul nachri, because bishul nachri is about, uh, you know, know, it's about um, the Italian neighbor uh, becoming friendly with the Sephardi girl. That's not happening if you go to a factory. They're making it for everybody. And, and therefore, maybe the whole ISR shouldn't apply. There is, there, is, there is a precedent for such an idea why uh, the, the ISR shouldn't apply in that case. But it's mostly been rejected uh, in today's time. I would say that in the, in the 50s and 60s, when there wasn't the same sort of muscle behind the kashrus organizations, they relied on that. And people ate foods that had been cooked at factories by non-Jews without any rabbi pushing any buttons. But it's basically now become standard policy uh, to be machmir, even on stuff that's done at an institutional factory scale, to be machmir. That's in terms of food that's been cooked. In terms of milk and in terms of bread, there, there is a lot of shades of gray and there's large percentages of the community, especially in the modern Orthodox or not so modern Orthodox, who are mako based on the psokim of Ramesha Feinstein and others to allow milk that was not that was not doesn't have to be produced specifically under special hashkocha, and when it comes to bread, here is something which even the rabbis itself speak about and say that bread, when it's being produced at a at, by a baker, in a, in a mass scale, that the law doesn't apply, and that's why that's something that we call in in in, in halachic terms pas palter. Uh, if, uh, however, if you, if the next door neighbor bakes you a bread, that would be usher, even if she used all kosher ingredients. But going to a non-Jewish bakery, that or uh, Arnold's bread, as it was called, and bread that's in the supermarkets, that wouldn't be a problem. Of, of so that sort of bread is somewhere in the middle. Milk, again, um, if you grew up in New York especially in the Hasidic communities, you consider this uh, as chomer, as eating, eating, eating chazer in some way. That is true. The Jews, especially after Pesach, Debbie asks, it, it was very common. Uh, there weren't any kosher bakeries open and people wanted to get food afterwards. So they would eat uh, not... They would eat bakers, the bakery breads that came out. Uh, in Mexico, we uh, consistently ate the bolillos, <laughs> and 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 all the all the from Jews ate it there. Uh, the bolillos were these um, these one cent rolls. They were great. Uh, I don't know how much they cost anymore, but in Mexico, you you would see the peasants lining up uh, every to get the fresh bolillos. That was my lunch almost every single day in Mexico that I lived there for a year and a half. A bolillo and an avocado 
And uh, bocce, you can imagine how great that was, the smearing of the avocado on the, on the fresh polio. Um, yeah, the, uh, yeah, Avrami, there had to be some involvement of the rabbis in the, in the bakeries to know what was going on. But it was, but you didn't need a rabbi to come in and open the stove. You didn't need someone to say, "Oh, we're cooking this bread." The bread was cooked by the non-Jews. All those bolillos that people ate in Mexico, they all, in fact, they would. <laughs> again, I'll maybe put a link on it in the description about all these bolillos. Um, but the point is, is that that was pas Yisrael. and pas Yisrael is something which the the Ramah and others say is a type of thing people should be machmer during the Aseris Yemei Tshuva. In other words, when they, when, they, when they thought about things that you could be more from about, and then maybe you'll go back to not doing later, or maybe once you see it's not so hard, you'll accept it. One of the examples was Pas Yisrael, to be machmer on Pas Yisrael. It's become easy to do, of course, uh, as times have changed. But it wasn't always so easy. So that's in terms of pas. And we can talk about it a little bit more. So there's pas. Right. Here we're talking about bishul, stuff that was cooked and ready. Okay. So that's a little bit of an aside. I thought it, was, it might be interesting for you just to see what this is all about. But now here comes a paradox, as we're going to see in a second. Here's the paradox. You ready? Here we go. Do, let's read it again. Right. Yeah, you can eat that. All right. Now, Amr Rav Yosef, Rav Yosef said, I've got an interesting angle on this. Rav Yosef was a student in the yeshiva that Rav developed, Surah. And Rav Yosef, I'm not sure if he ever saw Rav personally, but Rav Yosef added to that psak. And he said, V'im tzola nochri. Let's say a non-Jew would take one of those salty fishes and really roast it nicely. May put a little pepper in it. Who knows? But roast it. Get a little grease in it. Get that uh, roast it. Maybe without grease. I don't know. So machalei and mishumeru beitavshilim. That can be now a riftavshilim for you. Now, if he didn't roast it, in other words, if it was just salted, that doesn't count. Tavshilim means it has to be boiled, baked, cooked. All it was was salted. So the non-Jew is the one who's, who cooks it. You can eat it because it's not considered bishul nochri because you could have eaten it not as tasty, but you could have eaten it in its salty state. But now that the guy cooked it and roasted it, that could be your Erev Tavshilin for Yontif. Why? <laughs> because you need it to be cooked. You need it to be roasted. You need some sort of action to be done. So in other words, that's the paradox. On one hand, right, you can take that food that the guy sends over, which is that you're allowed to eat and say, hey, this is cooked. It's cooked enough to be, this is the, again, it's cooked enough to be Erev Tavshilin. But it's not considered cooked enough to be the Yisra of Bishul Nochri. So the word Tavshil, the same word, Tavshil, Beit Shin Lamed, means two different things. In terms of the law of Bishul Nochri, that's not really Bishul. Why? Because there is about what did he provide for you? What did he change for you? 
What did he develop for you? When it comes to the law of Erev Tavshilin, the question is, is this a cooked item? And is it significant because it's cooked? So even though, again, so it's, again, you're really, it's, it's really, it's almost, it's contradictory in some ways. Is it cooked or not cooked? Well, yes or no. It's cooked and therefore it's Erev Tavshilin. Well, if it's cooked, then how come you can eat it? A guy did it for you. Well, the, I could have eaten it raw. The guy's cooking didn't help me any much. So what Bishel means in one halacha is not what Bishel means in a different halacha. That's what Rabbi Yosef has, has zeroed in on. And that's what's fascinating about the interplay of these two laws. And that's what learning is about, really, about really seeing this subtle difference. It's, it's Bishel and not Bishel. That's what Rabbi Yosef is telling us. You can write, Mishumer of Tavshila. Okay. Now, uh, now Rabbi Yosef took it one more level because, and let's see what he says here. V'i avdin hu nochri. Let's say the non-Jew takes these fish and he doesn't just, he doesn't just uh, boil them. What he does is he works on them. And what does he do? He makes a special dish that was considered super tasty, probably was not healthy for you based on today's standards. But if he makes a dish called Casa de Harsana, Casa de Harsana, that was a special dish. Now, what is Casa de Harsana? So, um, the, uh, <laughs> um, the casa is, give me a second here. The casa is the, um, the grains, the flour. Why is, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. But let me, right. It's hash. But it's really hash because I just, I, what I want to talk about is I'm going to take the word and try to give you a way to remember what each part of the word means. Casa is not, casa is what comes from the word kosase, which is to chew. And especially that's how they used to chew wheat kernels. They were kosase. They would wheat, right? So the casa is another way of talking about wheat or flour. It was called casa. Harsana was the part of it that was the was the was was the innards of the fish itself. That was the that was the harsana. The harsana was the uh, the fat and fish part of parsh portions that sort of ooze out of the fish, right? That they, they, they like the the real essence in the middle of the fish that that oozes out and it's real thick fish innards. So what they would do was they would mix the um, they would the, you would take some of those fish innards and what you would do with them is um, uh, um, fry them with flour and that would make a, a what was considered a super tasty dish. Um, so let's say the non-Jew takes these fish, rips out some of those in kishkas of the fish, throws in some flour, puts it on the uh, grill, on the grill, 
on the uh, frying pan and, 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 and creates this dish. Then you cannot eat that. You cannot eat that. Why? Because as far as the fish goes, even though he put the, he took some of those innards and put it on the frying pan, we still say, hey, you could have eaten that fish the way it was. But the extra ingredient that was added, what was the extra ingredient? The flour. The, there, the flour was inedible the way it was. You don't really eat flour. Uh, it's, 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 it, it, it can give you a lot of issues intestinally, and it's really, you know, you can chew on it, but it's really not edible as flour. The non-Jew, through the roasting of it, through the frying of it, has made, has made the flour edible. And therefore, you can't eat this dish because of the flour. So let's read it. Then, Rav Yosef says, that you can't eat. If he just boils the salty fish, it's one thing. But if he throws in this other ingredient, it's usr. On that, the Gemara, this is a key Gemara word, I would underline it, is pshita. Okay? Now, I had a, I've argued for years with my students over the translation of this word. Um, the word pshita, uh, you've heard it before when you've studied Gemara, and most of the time it's being translated as, that's simple, that's pasha, that's pshita, we don't, you don't need to tell me something so simple. Now that's not all, I would say in, in many cases, I would say even more cases than not, that's not what pshita means. The word pshita comes from the Hebrew word to be poshet, which is to stretch out. Lahafshit, the beginning of Sefer Vayikra, of stripping animal skins. It's called hafshata, because what you do is you take something, you take the animal skin, the animal is hanging up on its head, and you, and you strip it down, going straight down. A poshet yad is someone who sticks his hand straight out. That's what pshita means. Pshita means it's straight. We, therefore, sometimes straight is simple. Straight is also something that's unnecessary for a rabbi to say. Rabbi, again, it depends in what context. A rabbi, maybe who's teaching a beginner's class, needs to say everything. The Talmud is not a rabbi who's mentioned the Talmud. means he came to the yeshiva and gave a shear, said a special statement, wanted to tell his his friends, his compatriots, his students something. You don't need to say things which they could have figured out themselves. So pshita means it's straightforward. Straightforward means you didn't need to say that. That's That goes against the way we look at information today. Right? If, 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 if the New York Times, New York, or whatever magazines would just write the way the Gemara writes, you wouldn't have or, the, or or encyclopedias that describe things. You wouldn't or or, or directions that come with uh, how to put model airplanes together would use the Gemara way of looking at things. Nobody would know what to do because we expect things to be described to us step by step. And the Talmud, the Talmud feels that if a rabbi had to make a statement that his students could have figured out, that his friends could have figured out, that it was really the very next logical step 
and based on information we already have, there's no reason to say it. That's what Pshita means. And that's what we're saying to Rabbi Yosef. Rabbi Yosef, yeah, okay, I could have thought of that. That's, that's, there's no reason to have said it. Because clearly, you're right, the fish is not the issue, but we know this ain't just fish. This is fish with the, with, with the flour. So we know the flour is a problem. So that is what the Gemara's question is. Pshita. So uh, now the Gemara is going to answer the Pshita. We never want a rabbi, especially someone like Rabbi Yosef, or Shashiva in his own right, one of the greatest of, of, of the rabbis that we have in the Talmud, to, to, to be guilty of saying something that's just straightforward. Anybody could have figured out. Again, I know this goes against the standard mentality, what you expect the teacher to be. That ain't the way it is in Gemara. So therefore, we need to answer Rabbi Yosef. Why did Rabbi Yosef need to say that? The first one is actually a novel point <laughs> about that, what I said, the, the, two, the two types of truth. That wasn't so pshita. That was something which people, we pat Rabbi Yosef on the back for showing us this interplay between Erev Tavshilin and Bishul Nochri. But the next statement is a pure Bishul Nochri statement. It's a pure halacha about Bishul Nochri, and it doesn't seem to really have anything novel. Okay, drum roll, please. We're about to go to the next page. Here we go. Mahu, again, a Kigamara word takes us there. Mahu diteima. Mahu means what? Ma, like what? Who? What is it, diteima, that I would have said? What is it that Yosef is trying to teach us against saying? Here we go. Next page. It's a little larger for everybody. I might have thought that when it comes to this, and what Debbie Tesla calls fish hash, I might say, what, uh, what is it? I would say the harsana, the fish innards, are really what this baby is. Ikar, are essential. Essential and therefore dominant. Aha. Uh-huh. If the fish innards are dominant, therefore, that's what it is. The fact that it has this other ancillary ingredient of flour, that doesn't mean anything to me. That's what I would have thought. Even though everybody puts the flour in, but we all know it's the fish. Nobody eats the flour. No one eats the roasted flour. The main thing of it is the fish. And the fish, we already know from Rav, isn't a problem. And May Rabbi Yosef is telling us, don't think that the fish is the ikker. Kamash Malon, a key Gemara word, a key, uh, a key um, abbreviation, Kamal, Kuf Mem Lamed, Kamash Malon, you should underline that, Kamash Malon, Ma, every Maudetem is followed by a Kamash Malon. Maudetem, a key Gemara word on the page before, followed by Kamash Malon. I would have thought, I would have said this. It's coming. Mashma, to make us understand. Lun to us. Lun is to us. Mashma, to make us think. Shama, to make us understand and, under, and imply. Adduce. It's coming to tell us that that when you put flour in, flour is the ikr. 
Right. The chopping, that wasn't the problem. Remember, once Rob told us that these fish are edible the way they are, I don't care if Wolfgang Puck gets a hold of them. I can eat those fish now. It's not a problem of Bishul Nachri. No matter how they've been changed. Because since it's an original state, it was edible and there wasn't anything wrong with it. It's not included in the Xera of Bishul Nachri. But here, the reason why it is, is because of the flour. The flour becomes essential. That's what Rabbi Yosef is teaching. You might have thought flour isn't essential. And that is a Chiddush. As you think about it, there's a lot of times that flour is added to a, 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 an object. And this gets us into the laws of brachot. Flour is added to, uh, to, 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 to material a lot of times. Matzah meal is added to gefilte fish. Uh, um, other types of flour added to, um, what's that candy everybody likes? Licorice, right? And there's a question. Do you make a mazonot there? What's the ikr? A shahakal, mazonot? The fact that there's the presence of kemach, does that make it ikr? Yes, Rabbi Yosef says. It makes it ikr, maybe in, in terms of the brocha, and also in terms of the law of, of, uh, since it's ikr in terms of the bracha, the way I look at this dish, I say, what did the non-Jew do for me here? The non-Jew took flour and made it edible. What do you mean he made the flour edible? What about the fish? The fish was okay even before. Yeah, but it's now more of a flour dish. Since it's a flour dish, and you would make a mizonos on it, therefore what the non-Jew does to it is essential and makes it verboten for the Jew to eat it. It's part of Bishul Nochri because of that. Um, just to show you again, I know uh, a very interesting point on this. Look at this Tosfas here on the side. Now, one thing, uh, right, you see, it says, Kimcha Iker, Mikan, he says, this is the source, Onu Somchim, this is the source that we rely on, likach, to buy, minanochrim, from the non-Jews, pas, bread, and not just bolios, like I mentioned from Mexico, but hanilosh minabetzim, that actually have eggs in them, right? Chala. You could actually get these, these sweet rolls from the goyim too, that have eggs in them. Shekorin Katvaish and Ubliyash. Those are breads that have eggs and other stuff. It's not just bread and water. It's not just, right? Why? Tatosis takes us through our steps. He says, Demai Nachush. What would be the reason, my Nachush, to worry? Let's think about why. It's a, it's, it's a challah made by the non-Jews. You can buy them. E mishum pat atzmo. If you're going to tell me it's the bread, well, we know, as I told you before, the rabbis say you can buy bread from a non-Jew. Hitiru chachamim. The bread's not the problem. E if mishum beitzim. What about the fact that there's eggs in there? And Sheshokuba that they that they mixed in there, they they cooked in there, 
right? The non-Jew cooked the eggs. So what do we say in our in our Gemara from Rabbi Yosef? We're saying here, Kim Iker. Here we're saying that the kemach of something is the most important thing. By the fish hash or the kasna arsana, we say the fish part would make it mutter to eat. But the bread part is what I'm worried about. Not the bread part, really, the, the flour part. But we know in general we allow even 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 bread that is uh, cooked by baked by a non-Jew to be eaten. It's it's a paradox. The ground flour is more of a problem than had he turned it into bread. Bread we allow, and therefore, since we allow bread, the bread is the more important thing than the eggs and the challah. And therefore, you don't have to worry about the eggs and the other ingredients because whenever bread is around or flour is around, what is it essentially? It's essentially a bread flour item. So in our case in the Gemara, that means because it's flour and not bread, you can't eat it. But the post can actually say, Tosis actually says, this is the basis for not only buying regular bolios, but actually being able to buy from the non-Jews these chalas that have a sweet taste based on eggs and other ingredients that are put into it. Because kim chaikar, in terms of bishul nachri. <laughs> and therefore, since the, the, the flour was turned into to bread, and bread's not an issue, you can eat it. Anyway, Tosos goes on. It's a very fascinating Tosos. I just wanted to show you that this is a this is this 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 gemara is used in, in, in a lot of interesting ways outside of the laws of of uh, Yomtev. Okay, but now we go back to our subject matter and Amar of Abba, a Ruve Tavshilin, which we were talking about, and we saw this on the page before and in the in, in, right. Srichin kizayit. Bachi asked a couple of days ago about one noodle. So the question is again, um, right? You need a kizayit, a couple of ounces, to be considered Erev uh, Tavshilin. Okay. The Gemara now says something, a key Gemara term. Iboy luhu. I might have mentioned it before. I don't remember. Iboi, it was asked, Luhu, by them. It was asked in, I, I, I see this as an open question. It was asked to them, meaning in the yeshiva, this question was raised. Iboi, it was asked, Luhu, to them, to the assembled rabbis. We know we've heard that you need a kezayat. Rav Abba told us a kezayat. The Gemara before talked about a kezayat. The question is, is it kezayat echad likulan? Let's say you have a big family. Is one kezayat enough for everyone? We talked earlier about the rabbi making, we'll get to it later as well in this page, in the next page, the rabbi making a era for the whole city. Does he need a kezayat? One kezayat works for everybody? One kezayit is all you need? Oh, oh, Dilma, 
every boiler who will, will give you each side of the argument. One way is one kazai, it's a, basically just a, uh, a legal fiction. Even though you're cooking for a hundred people, one kazayat is enough. It stands for all of them. The other side of the coin is, oh, perhaps Dilma, kazayat likol echad v'echad. For every family member, you need one kazayat. Right? You should need one kazayat representing each person. So, we're not sure. So, we prove it from sometimes a brisa, sometimes a mishnah. The word that introduces a proof, the phrase, is this tough shin. And I'm sure you're all mouthing it along with me together. To shma. To means come. Asa, to, right? Shma, let's try to figure it out from here. Let's see if this is a proof. Normally, you'd expect a Bryce or a Mishnah. That's not what we're getting here. We're getting another statement from Rav Abba in the name of Rav, who is a very impressive man, but not a Mishnah or a Bryce. So not every Toshma is followed. Sometimes Toshma is from an er, a, 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 a decision from an earlier generation. A statement from, because remember, it's Rav Abba who started things off by telling us we need a Kezayat. We didn't know what Rababa meant. We did some more research, and then we discover Toshma. Hey, we found another statement of Rababa. De Amar Rabbi Abba, and this is the name of Rav, Eruvei Tabshilin. That's what we've been talking about. Tzrichin. They definitely need a what? Kizayit. And that's Bein Le'echod, Bein Lemeya. Whether it's one person or a hundred people or a thousand people, ten thousand people, if you're making, if the Rav making it for the city, one kazayat is enough. So that's the question was answered. You could have understood it either way. The question was answered based on another tradition. It wasn't anything logical, but it was a clarification of the original statement. Um, I, I know this is where we should stop. I'm going to go two, three minutes over today just to to uh, give us a, a sense of what happens here. These two dots are a mistake. I don't know uh, if you're if, if in Steinsaltz or an art scroll, they have this as a separate paragraph or not. This is really a question that's coming up on what we just said. Tanan is a Kigamara word that means we're quoting our Mishnah. Ochlo, if the Erev, remember we talked about Dali jumping on the table. Ochlo, Osha Ovad. Let's say it was eaten or it got lost, the Erev that you set up. Uh oh, I gotta, I, I gotta cook for Shabbos. What's happening? Lo Yavasho, a love. You can't say, well, I set it up on Thursday. Uh, my intentions were good. Can't I cook? No, you can't. You can't say I'm cooking for Shabbos now. You don't have your Erev. It's gone. However, the Mishnah said, if it was left over, 
mimenu, from the original, koshuhu, a small amount, something, you got something left. Do you see something left from that original piece of gefilte fish? So mech, a love, you can rely on it with Shabbat. So the fact that you haven't cooked yet for Shabbos, you set it up on Thursday, but the whole point is the Erev needs to be here as the beginning of your meal, so to speak, the beginning of your preparation, but it says you can actually get away with a kol shahu. Kol shahu sounds a lot less than two ounces. Kizayit means the size of an olive. My koshuhu doesn't koshu. What does it mean when the Mishnah said koshuhu? The assumption is lav does it not mean af. There's a kigamara phrase coming up. That's coming up. That that will be mentioned a little bit later. It was it was an extension of the original. Debbie's asking why we're not talking about the communal Arif and the Mishnah. That is something the Talmud discusses as an extension of the original idea of Erev. But we'll see. Um, my koshuhu, what does koshu mean? Lav, afal gav, the lekekezayit. Doesn't it mean, here's a key Gemara phrase, afal gav, even though, af, on top of the back, afal gav, even, even there, like you're telling me, doesn't that mean that it's a koshuhu deleka kezayit. There's not two ounces here. And that shows me you don't need to have, you don't need to have uh, those ounces. So the Gemara answers, low. No. The Mishnah doesn't mean you can get away with less than a kezayit ever. De it, there is, bay in what was left over. Kizayit. So now the question is, why was it called a koshu? Koshu means just a small ko. I see it. No, koshu means that it wasn't what it was originally. Rashi says, and this will end with ulegabe, connected to the original kikar, connected to the original uh, amount where it was a it was a complete roll. And it had obviously more. These rolls, they didn't make small rolls. It wasn't worth the energy. They made a complete roll. It was probably big. Karile, we call in the Mishnah's terms, kol shahu. You put quotation marks here. But it really is a couple of ounces of, 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 of material. So that is the, um, that is what the Gemara's answer is. The Gemara at this point seems to say, that even if Dali jumps on the table and eats some of the Erev, we got to make sure there's a Kazayat left. A small amount isn't good enough, according to what we're saying now. We'll see if that's the law. But that's what the Gemara is saying. It needs the Kazayat. That's what we say, Tzrich and Kazayat. It always needs the Kazayat throughout. And that Kazayat's got to be there while you're cooking. That's what it would seem like as well. So... Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.